Hello and a very warm welcome to the One World Podcast. Wherever you are and however you've discovered us, it's great to have you listening. I'm Joe Haddo and today I'm sat in the Frontline Club in London, a haven for journalists with former BBC War correspondent and MP, the man in the white suit himself, Martin Bell. Hello, welcome to you, sir. Well, welcome to my second home. (laughs) Thank you for inviting us in. (laughs) You seem very, very comfortable here. I I, I imagine you've spent many a long afternoon and evening here over the years. Uh, From time to time, it was something that London needed, and I think it's had it for 15 years now. It's not just old war reporters, but that was the basis. There's a few Walter Mitty's come by and journalists of all sorts, but... uh, but you do actually meet people who haven't met for years, and it's a, it's a good place to be. Yeah, it's fantastic, and, and a very apt setting, I think, to talk about your new book, War and the Death of News. Am I right in thinking you wrote this book after finding a, a box of notes in your attic? Uh, yes, I had a huge cardboard box in my attic, to which I'd paid no attention for 40 years. Well, I'd, I'd accumulated it, and I managed to do 35 years in the BBC without ever using a computer one single time. What I did have were lots of little black notebooks in which I noted down things as they happened and commonplaces and interviews and odd things people said to me and things I said to myself. And as I went through them, having discovered this cardboard box, I thought, yeah, this might interest people, so I wrote the book. Now, it's fascinating because now we, we find ourselves writing everything almost on, on technology. You know, I'm sat here with a with a phone and I've written a few questions that I'm going to ask you and that's the same with with diaries as well people are now putting appointments in their calendars but I think that's a a tragedy in a way because we're losing that that ability to look back and find out what happened in our lives or other people's lives on certain days you're wiping your own memories Mm. and I don't think people take notes they certainly don't keep them emails fall off get wiped and you're only left with the memories, you're, and your, your memories aren't enough. I'll, I'll give you an example. I was going through one of the black notebooks of a particularly dark time in the Bosnian War. It was February 93. I was on a mountain track in Mount Igman above Sarajevo being embraced by a singular warlord. His name was Yusuf Prezina. He started off fighting for the Bosnian government side in the war that began in uh, 92. He then defected to the HVO, the Croatian Armed Force. And I wrote in my notebook, just to myself that night, everyone's lying, but it doesn't matter because no one's listening either, which is true of so much journalism. You feel from reading it, I, I get the sense you feel there's much less eyewitness reporting in today's news. Why, why do you think that is? I think it's generally agreed to be the case. Everything changed after 9-11. Before 9-11, the worst that could happen to you was to be caught in the crossfire, and it happened to people, and I lost a few friends. But you weren't targeted. After 9-11, not only Western reporters, but principally Western reporters, were targeted, kidnapped, ransomed, and maybe executed. As they're, they're for, look at what happened to Anthony Lloyd of the Times, who's a wonderful, wonderful war reporter. He was shot in both his ankles by his minder in Aleppo. So people then disappeared to distant frontiers where they peer through binoculars and speculate. But it's not the same as, as being there, and I think we've lost something very valuable. So the wars of the 21st century are being fought in a sort of medieval darkness. The sort of reporting we did, which was close up, I mean, you were with armies, warlords, you can't do anymore for the danger of being kidnapped, taken out, ransomed, executed. We knew what was going on around us and we reported it. You can't do that anymore because you're on some distant hotel rooftop or television station 50 
miles away from where things are happening, just talking. And is that the green zones that you're talking about that are sort of removed from, from the actual conflict and, and you're not seeing, or war reporters are not seeing as much as they should now? There was sort of interim phase after the operations in uh, Iraq in 2003 where green zones were set up and the same in Kabul where reporters could operate safely but they couldn't they had to get out and by that time they had ex-military men as their minders and they were allowed out from well, shall we say for 20 minutes at a time well you need to be absorbing the whole atmosphere you need to be out and about and you can't this is not just a a good old days argument. It's actually true. We were able to do things then that today's practitioners can't. It's a fact. Can you take us back to the good old days then a little bit and about how much time you would be spending, for example, in a city and ingraining yourself in the culture and, and how you would understand that conflict more? It came and went. I'm, I'm old enough to have reported the Vietnam War in 67 and 73 in conditions of quite extraordinary freedom. All you needed was the right press pass, which was easy to get, and you could clamber aboard any American military helicopter on a space-available basis and go anywhere. Well, there were those in the American military who blamed the press for losing them in the war. I think that's a simplification. (coughs) But the myth took hold within the Pentagon that the press was to blame. So the next thing you knew was total exclusion. Invasion of Grenada, what, 1983? the press were completely kept out of it. Any press boat trying to get in from Barbados was threatened with being blown away by the US Navy. And then over the years, a sort of accommodation was reached, semi-access, a sort of access, what we call embedding. That is being attached to a military unit and going to war with it under censorship. And I claim to be the first embed because I have a an accreditation, I'd actually here in the Frontline Club, authorization to accompany a British operational force. And the serial number is 001. This was uh, February 91. It's better than nothing, but it's, it's very fragmentary and necessarily not impartial because you're only on one side. You talk about social media as well, and this is a huge topic now because we sort of revolve around social media or certainly some generations do in this world do you think as consumers of news we are not getting factual information now because of all the different sources that it's coming from here we're getting into the fake news territory we are no longer sure what is news the internet is a wonderful medium for the propagation of falsehoods Goebbels would have had a ball today all he had to do in his work in his time was the radio, film and newspapers. Imagine it done with the internet. You can put any lie out there. And, I mean, I don't know, myself I don't know what to believe because uh, the sort of news that I used to practice is no longer possible. I know the reputable organisations whom I tend to trust, but they're batting on equal terms with kids in Macedonia making stuff up to make money out of it. This is the beginning of fake news. So do you think we were already sort of experienced fake news before Trump, for example, and he's just, he's just put it on the map a little bit? Look, there were falsehoods. In his book, I've written a whole chapter about the falsehoods of television news, and I showed it to mates of mine, and I couldn't, I didn't name the names. People who pretended to be there were where they were not. Is this fellow, fellow reporters? Yes. People who claimed to be under fire when they were not. 
people who fabricated whole scripts. And I showed it to a mate of mine in ITN, and he, he named every one of them. But I think they were an exception rather than the rule, because we just had the duopoly then of ITN and BBC, there were only two networks, and the, the competition was really intense. Uh, and people were sometimes impelled to do things they shouldn't have done. But we know who they were, and they're mostly dead now anyway. So false news is, is not new. What is new? Websites which exist to propagate lies and make money out of it. This has never happened before. And is there any turning back now, do you think, with this swell of social media, fake news, websites like that, doing it to make a profit? Are we going to just face this for the years to come? I think there is a pushback by reputable news media. I notice that the New York Times and the Washington Post, both prime targets of Trump, are gaining huge numbers of, uh, of subscribers online because people want reliable information from reliable outlets. So I think there is a fight back, and I think it's going to be a long process. But, you know, Trump is not forever, and there are lessons that have to be learned from his... Uh, extraordinary wildcard presidency. You mentioned two huge giants of, of news publications there, which brings me to ask about print media in general now on, on the decline, and is that because everyone's turning to get bite-sized news elsewhere and not consuming it how we have been doing for the last, you know, however many years? I think most of us are no longer buying newspapers at the corner shop. We are getting our information off screens. The alarming trend for me has been the, the disappearance or the, the decline of the local newspapers, the national provincial dailies, the weeklies. They're going under or they are masquerading as newspapers. In fact, they're edited from hubs out of press releases mostly. When I was an MP, which was a generation ago, I represented a constituency in Cheshire, which had two perfectly good newspapers, one in Wilmslow, one in Nutswood. Both the offices are now closed. The newspapers still appear to exist, but they're edited from hubs in Northwich or, or, or Manchester. And they have no presence in the community. There are no reporters finding things out. And I think we're all being shortchanged by this. And actually that's a small version of what you're saying about war reporting and reporting in other countries, of course, foreign correspondencies. They're not getting in to live and understand the communities like they used to. There are very few correspondent, foreign correspondents left anymore. Those that are left are under huge pressure from the rolling news channels, radio and television, to dispense instant wisdom. And you know, the thing about the rolling news is it shows more than it, more than it knows. So the idea of going out there, finding things out, and at the end of the day giving a measured conclusion, it's pretty well all gone. It doesn't happen anymore. Mostly... These people are chained to the to the dish. You'll find satellite dishes on the roofs of hotels. It happened in Sarajevo while I was there. I saw the great Peter Arnett, who was one of the great reporters of uh, AP in Vietnam, 60s, 70s. Good journalist. Working for CNN by the time he reached Sarajevo. And he was talking to Atlanta all the time. And he pleaded to go and find things out. He certainly can't do that. He's got to be back on air in, in half an hour. Well, you don't know what's happening anymore. Can we talk a little bit about what you think is actually missing from our mm. news reports other than, say, just the reporters not being as connected to where they're reporting from? Is there more that you think we're lacking in this day and age? We're lacking authenticity. We are lacking the sense of 
being there, the news agenda has itself changed enormously under the process of what I call celebrification. I mean, even mainstream newspapers now have a celebrity section obsessed with the comings and goings of the Kardashian family. Well, it, it never used to happen. I mean, when the BBC and ITN had their duopoly, they both began in the mid-50s, and it lasted until the arrival of Sky News, really, in the early 90s. We more or less had a shared agenda, but after, by the, I think by the end of the Cold War, 89, uh, the audiences of the regular television news bulletins collapsed. They halved. People stopped watching. They were no longer worried about mutual assured uh, destruction. So the news agenda veered off course. There's a lot of celebrity stories, a lot of medical stories, because they discovered, of course, that the audience was predominantly elderly and worried about its health. And, of course, with the arrival of the Internet, a newspaper who had no idea in its printed version what pages were viewed and what were not, they knew immediately what stories hits and what didn't. So if a story about Princess Diana 20 years after her death still attracted huge interest, then let's have another story about Diana. Likewise, Madeleine McCann. It was a, a palpable decline of serious journalism. You coined a phrase, I think, and you use it, journalism, when talking about 24-hour news. And I just wondered, do you think there are any pros to having 24-hour news now, or is it all cons? None whatever. I think it's a curse and a, and a, a scourge. It shows more than it knows. It speculates wildly. It's mostly not there. I, I've, I've got to be careful here because my daughter Melissa is now the CNN correspondent in Paris, so I don't want to lose her, her job. But most of it consists of correspondents not going and finding things out. They do occasionally, but being on base, tethered to the dish, answering questions from unknowing news anchors in London, Atlanta or New York. It's all show, in my mind, and no substance. Do you talk to your daughter about, about news reporting now and, and the differences and, and how it's changed? Do you have differing opinions on it? No, actually, be fair to her. She's just done an amazing story, quite against the trend of the times, on the Italian Alps, going out in two feet of snow in the middle of the night following these Africans trying to escape to, to France. So every now and again, um, good stuff does, does happen. So I can't, I can't fault that, because that's in the best tradition. Do you look back fondly on the, on the travelling you did and, and the cities that you were staying in and, and got to know? I think we had a, we had a wonderful time. Um, we were practising journalism at the best of times. Um, everything changed in the early 80s. Before then, we shot film. Film was mostly shipped in onion bags, air freighted to London. It would arrive three or four days later and the newsreader would say film has just reached us from. Early 80s, when it started for us in El Salvador about 1981, suddenly news of the day could be reported on the day. And because you are always up against a, a deadline, you would edit it yourself and we had the freedom to put in what we wanted and they couldn't change it. They could either drop it or use it. So this lasted for about 15 years until the mobile phone came into the front line. Then the phone would ring and they'd tell you the feeling of the meeting. I sometimes used to switch the damn thing off, actually, yeah. yeah. You mentioned the Holiday Inn, which also features in the book, both photographically and you write about it, obviously. 
what is it about that hotel that means so much to you or, or, or why you remember it so far? Well, over the years and over the wars, we developed a certain fondness for the war zone hotels, which are not necessarily the best one, but where you gathered. I started off at the Continental Palace in Saigon, went on to the Camino Real in um, San Salvador. Of course, there's the Europa in Belfast, but to me, the finest of them all was what was there in the Holiday Inn, uh, which was right at the heart of things. I mean, the war began with shooting from the Holiday Inn at a crowd of peace demonstrators outside. It took off from there, and within 48 hours, it was this is the Bosnian War, it was raging on 17 battlefields. No, we, uh, we loved it. It's the only hotel I have ever known where most people had to pay their bills on arrival because the management couldn't be sure they'd still be alive when they checked out, you see. But the f- southern facade of it faced the Serbs' front line and it was badly damaged by machine gun and shell fire. So you lived on the other three f- sides. There was no power, no water for much of the time. Fantastic camaraderie among the journalists. And we just loved it. The photo of you as a young squaddy in the book is um, brilliant seeing you there. And it's your first television appearance. It was. I was uh, asked to do a, a spelling bee on behalf of the Suffolk Regiment. We did really well. We, I think we beat the Lancashire Fusiliers. Then we lost to a crowd of apprentice Oxford and Cambridge dons from the headquarters Cypress District. But it was, it was uh, my first... I never did television years after that but I remembered it and it, it got the uh, army PR people to send a, a public relations photograph to the Beckles and Bungie Journal because I come from Beckles in East Suffolk and it then appeared and the, the headline was Beckles Corporal Win- Wins Dictionary and uh, <laughs> I take it took off from there. Uh, you mentioned earlier you were M- an MP for several years do you miss that? There are things you don't enjoy doing in life but you enjoy having done to me being a soldier was one being a member of parliament was the other I was pitchforked into it I had no political ambitions but I did it Uh, and I think it was worth doing at the time I was MP for Tatton in Cheshire later represented by George Osborne previous to me it was a character called Neil Hamilton who was quite well known and it was like a national by-election it attracted huge publicity all my friends in the press assured me I was going to lose, but actually I didn't. I won as an independent by 11,000 votes. It wasn't an easy four years, but I'm glad I did it. And your predecessor there, of course, now uh, an editor of a newspaper. Well, my predecessor have had, have had interesting careers. Uh, Neil Hamilton, who I defeated, is now the leader of the UKIP group in the Welsh Assembly. Just about all the UKIP has left. And George Osborne, who followed me and served for, I got elected two or three times, he then retired from politics, for the time being, he said, to edit the Evening Standard. Well, I was a journalist turned politician, and he's a politician turned journalist. Any conflicts there, do you think? I think if he were to be a partisan conservative, yes, there would be conflicts. But if he's genuinely retired, I mean, I mean the glee with which he, um, he pronounced on the last general election... Uh, I think his political career is probably unfinished business. I thought he was MP for life, and and he did. But he backed the wrong side on Brexit and decided to get out. Whatever it is, he's not short of ambition. I mean, he's a perfectly decent human being. But I think he's one of the most ambitious people I've ever met. And because of your former roles and career, do do you find yourself following politics pretty closely now? 
I do. I'm a, I'm a Remainer. I'm profoundly depressed by our departure from the European Union. I seem to be on the losing side. Goodness knows what's in store for us. I was the BBC's Washington correspondent during the Reagan years, so I follow the present wild-card presidency of Trump with extreme interest. Uh, and uh, I happen to think we live in the most dangerous time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. But, you know, I'm, I'm nearly 80, so I've obviously got more past than future. Do you ever watch, read, see things about Trump that make you recall the Reagan era and, and your time in it? it? I believe it's a false analogy. I know Trumpistas like to see Trump as a reincarnation of Reagan. Totally different character. Reagan had had two successful terms as governor of California. He knew about government. He had very smart people around him. Uh, Jim Baker, on Reagan. He was, and he had a fantastic ability to communicate with the American people. Not just his Republican base, but the Democrats. He won re-election with 49 of the 50 states. All the Democratic states as well. Because he was a communicator and he came over as, as a decent man. And I think the historians, when they come, well, they already started, his, uh, Barack Obama said that he changed the trajectory of America in a way that Nixon didn't and in a way that Clinton didn't. So I think he's, he's emerged with the general approval of uh, historians. I think he's going to be regarded as the architect of the end of the Cold War. The critical moment was his summit in Iceland with Gorbachev in 1986, when he walked away without a deal. And I thought he'd screwed it up. I was completely wrong. It was the beginning of the end. Um, the Russians could not compete with Star Wars, the, what the Americans were able to do with small computers. And a collapse set in, which was the last moment, I think, of real hope for the world. The early 90s were fantastic, until we lost it all in wars, most of which I reported. And what's your hope for this book? I mean, this is your eighth, I believe, that you've published. And I just wondered who you want the audience to be that might not necessarily be the one that has bought it so far. I don't want it to be just old journalists and people of my generation. I want it to be young journalists. There's a whole chapter in there about how they should behave. Like, never read a script off a, off a computer. Uh, pay natural attention to the cadences of the English language. Go out and find things out for yourself. It is, in a way, a requiem for a lost age of news reporting, but I think it also points the way to go. So, you know, the paperback comes out this year, and of all the books I've written, it's probably the one I'm proudest of. We mentioned the, the lovely setting we are in earlier, and I can't help notice over there on the wall some cabinets of historical moments, and perhaps I think you might feature in some of those. Could you, <laughs> could you tell us about these... These fantastic uh, cabinets of, of trinkets here. Uh, there's one there with William Howard Russell, the, the uh, father of all war reporters, I think, was something like his original boots, the Times man in the Crimea. I actually did a mastermind on the BBC in January, and my chosen topic was William Howard Russell. And amazingly, I won. Did you? Yeah, they, but the competition wasn't terribly strong. <laughs> He only have four books, six books written by him or about him. Once you've read them all, you know them all. There's a, an amazing artificial limb used by a dear friend of mine, Mohammed Amin, who was one of the great cinematographers I've ever met, newsman. He, had a, he lost an arm in a, in a munitions dump explosion in Nairobi. 
and he had artificial arm fitted and he went on working with it until he died in an air- aircraft hijack over the Indian Ocean. I've got one of my white suits there. They've also kept behind a glass cabinet my accreditation card to serve in Gulf War I, uh, serial number 001, which I think establishes me as the father of embedding, though other people dispute that. awful lot of flak jackets and things with bullet holes in them. It's like an unofficial museum of war reporting and a great club to be in. Yes, it certainly is. And I'm very glad to see that you've got a white suit on today as well. You haven't let me down in that department. No, no, I do have a dark one for funerals, but I always wear the same. Other people have to decide what they're going to wear in the morning. I always know. Yeah. It's very much a, a book for now. It's a book that everyone, I think, should should read, and certainly anyone interested in journalism or, or the news agenda. And uh, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much.